0: Just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner son of Ner had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he's gone. You know, Abner, son of Ner, he came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern at Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately. And there, to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner son of Nur. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword and who lacks food. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the bier. They buried Abner in Hebron and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang his lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before the wicked. And all the people wept over him again. Then they all came and urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath saying, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his men, do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak, and these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoers according to his evil deeds.
1: Hello, um, I'm Clem, if you haven't met me before, um, and I'm going to be bringing us uh, God's Word. Uh, I'm not the pastor, Gab is the pastor, he's away on um, annual leave, uh, long service leave actually. Um, So we're getting a few different people coming through to preach over the coming weeks. Uh, Next week John is preaching, I'm kind of looking forward to that as well. Um, But yeah, uh, we're going to look into this particular passage today. Um, I have to say, when Gav first floated the idea of uh, preaching on this particular passage, um, I was scratching my head a little. Um, It's a short little passage, and I have to admit that I'm prone to skimming over passages like this in my quiet times. Um, It's just another brutal event in the brutal history of Israel. But having reflected on it, I found it really interesting. Uh, It's a narrative that contrasts two very different people and the way they approached life and death and faith one man took matters into his own hands the other man refused to do so one man was bent on revenge the other man waited on god and at the heart of the story is vengeance good old-fashioned revenge before we dive in let's commit our time to god and pray let's pray father as we come to your word may you mold us and shape us to be more like your son jesus Help us to come to grips with what you have to say to us about vengeance, that we might live in such a way as to honour you and bring glory to your name. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anger boiled within him. A thousand thoughts tumbled over and over in his head. How could he? How dare he? His fists shook. His stomach churned. His face spoke murder. He barely noticed the sudden hush of his men as he stalked past them through the King's courtyard and into the King's compound. Sweat and grime still clung to him. He hadn't bathed since returning from his latest raid. But this couldn't wait. This had to be dealt with now. As soon as the messenger had told him the news, the elation of his recent victories had been displaced by red-hot Barely controlled rage. Storming into the room, he saw David, king of Judah, talking with his advisors. They looked excited, which only served to stoke his fury. His angry voice cut through the conversation like a knife. What have you done? Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner came to deceive you and to gather intelligence on you. Stunned silence. Only one man would dare to address his king this way. Only Joab, son of Zeruiah, commander of David's armies, held that kind of power. What occurred after was a blur. But when Joab left the room, he was not satisfied. Thoughts continued to mill around in his mind, his restlessness growing. Years, long, hard years of civil war. Men maimed and killed. And the man in charge of the enemy, Abner, had come and left in peace. In peace. Everyone knew that Abner was the man who was really in charge. Not ish that puppet who had been installed as the king of Israel. Abner was in charge. And there was no way he would want to put David on the throne over all Israel. Abner couldn't be trusted. Perhaps it was the heat of the moment that coloured Joab's thoughts about Abner in this way. Or perhaps if Joab was honest with himself, his view of Abner was tainted. Tainted by the years of war, seeing him as the enemy. Tainted by a seed of fear that perhaps Abner himself would take Joab's uh, position as David's general. Or well, more significantly, perhaps Abner's view of, uh, Joab's view of Abner was tainted by something even deeper. That almost two years ago, Abner had done the unforgivable. That he had killed Joab's younger brother, Asahel. And that after all this time, Joab had never been able to move past it. No, Joab thought to himself, Abner couldn't be trusted. This had to end now. If David wouldn't do what needed to be done, then Joab would. Joab would take matters into his own hands. He would make sure that Abner was never a threat to David or to Joab himself. And most importantly, that he would pay for what he had done to Asahel. Well, that was pretty grim. (laughs) Um, and it's what I imagine the events looked like shortly before the cold-blooded murder of Abner. We read in verse 27 that after Joab left the king, he organized to meet with Abner. And Abner, trusting that Joab was acting in good faith, agreed to meet. And while Abner's guard was down, Joab killed him like a fool, as David later describes. A fool who was gullible enough to trust Joab. And why does, Joab, why does Abner die? vengeance verse 30 makes it very clear we read joab and his brother abishai murdered abner because he had killed their brother asahel in the battle at gibeon as much as Joab had tried to justify his own actions by claiming he was protecting david it was clear to everyone that his main motivation was revenge joab was a man of vengeance vengeance payback retribution, settling the score. Uh, Whatever way we use to describe it, it's something that's familiar to all of us. Uh, I'm sure we've all felt some of the feelings that Joab felt, um, hopefully not for the same reason, and hopefully not not to the point of killing someone. Uh, But when someone wrongs us, we can get that same sense of indignation, that sense of anger and hurt and frustration and bitterness, and that sense of restlessness, a restlessness that looks for justice, for things to be put right, for compensation, a restlessness that makes us want to take things into our own hands to right that wrong. Vengeance is something that we're all familiar with. And it doesn't have to take much to prompt us to it. Uh, Only the other day I was on my way to work, happily driving along, uh, when some hoon came right up onto my tail and kept flashing their lights at me, me, trying to get me to drive faster. Um, but the only problem was I was on a single-lane country road, and there was a truck in front of me. It wasn't exactly comfortable. Uh, by the time an overtaking lane opened up, I was tempted to change lanes and slow down, you know, just a bit of a brake check, you know, just to teach this guy a lesson for being a danger and a nuisance on the road. It doesn't, want to, doesn't take much for, for us to want to take matters into our own hands. Uh, vengeance is familiar to all of us, and it's satisfying as well. We kind of resonate with stories about vengeance, don't we? I mean, there's a whole genre of popular movies out there about getting revenge, like John Wick and Kill Bill. I mean, there's even a whole TV series called Revenge. Um, And besides Hollywood, we love to hear a good real-life revenge story. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, there was a teacher who no one liked. Uh, He was just a mean-hearted man who would pick on students and use his position of power to make life miserable. Uh, Here was kind of like a real-life Dolores Umbridge, if you're a Harry Potter fan. Uh, For muck-up day, some of the Year 12 guys a a few years above me decided to get payback. During class time, they snuck out to the teacher's car park and very carefully wrapped his entire car in several layers of glad wrap. And we all gave them a standing ovation when we heard about it. There's something satisfying when we hear a revenge story. There's something satisfying about someone getting what they deserve. It kind of speaks to our sense of justice. When someone's wronged us, we long to see justice done. You know what? In our world, justice doesn't really often get done. Bullies seem to get away with things. People who abuse their authorities just sort of glide on with their lives. People who cheat the system seem to reap the benefits, while those who do the right thing don't seem to get anything for their troubles. So when we hear of people taking it upon themselves to take revenge, it can seem almost noble, really. But if we're honest with ourselves, there's also something disturbing about revenge stories as well. They're the kind of stories that make us shift in our seats, that make us laugh along sometimes, but nervously. We get a sense that there's something not quite right when someone takes it upon themselves to get vengeance. And I think it's got to do with the fact that vengeance is never impartial. When we've been wronged, we're too emotionally invested and too swayed by a hurt to see things clearly, to be able to see all sides of the story, to make a clear judgment on what would be a fair outcome and what wouldn't be. More often than not, an act of revenge surpasses the wrong that was done in the first place. It was like that with Joab. His judgment was clouded. If you can recall the events around Asahel's death, Abner had tried to spare Asahel during the battle. He had pleaded with Asahel to stop chasing him, but it just wouldn't stop. Abner's intention was not to harm him, even though the outcome was the exact opposite. And no matter what perspective on war you hold, I think we can all agree that there's a difference between killing an enemy soldier on the battlefield and premeditated, cold-blooded murder. Abner's murder was not an act of justice. Joab, in his quest for vengeance, perpetuated injustice. Joab was a man bent on revenge, and hearing the story is both familiar and disturbing. But whilst Joab was a man of vengeance, David was anything but. As we see in the unfolding verses after Abner's death, David utterly condemned this act of revenge. Firstly, David distanced himself and his kingdom from the guilt of Abner's death. In verse 28, David says, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. It's an emphatic declaration of innocence and one of condemnation on Joab. Second, David holds a royal funeral and burial for Abner, burying him at Hebron and grieving in the sight of all people. He even makes Joab do the same, which must have been humiliating to say the least. His respect went beyond what was necessary. He fasted for Abner. He lamented for Abner in song. In verse 38, he commends Abner, do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? David doesn't want anything to do with the murder of Abner. He doesn't want his kingdom to come through the unjust shedding of blood. He doesn't want others to see him as a warlord who seizes his power, seizes his kingdom through deception and a thirst for power. After all, David is not a man of vengeance like Joab. David isn't a man who grasps for power and takes matters into his own hands. David is a man who waits upon God. David is a man who waits upon God. It's a pattern we've seen all through his life. Uh, Just think back to the time when Saul was out to kill David. Twice, David had the opportunity and the means to kill Saul. And yet in both instances, David not only decided not to kill Saul, he had to actively restrain his men from doing so. Uh, 1 Samuel 26 gives us a helpful insight into David's mind. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Saul hunted David into exile out of jealousy. David had done nothing wrong. And yet Saul drove him out and into a period of his life in which David at times despaired of life itself. We read of some of his anguish in the Psalms. But when the opportunity comes for David to take vengeance on Saul and to secure his own freedom and his own safety, he refrains from doing so. He cannot raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He cannot raise his hand against the man God himself blessed as king. But the next verse gives us more insight into David's heart. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David waits on God's judgment. It echoes what David told Saul after he spared his life for the first time. In 1 Samuel 24, David tells Saul, See, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. It's not just that David... Refrains from taking vengeance because Saul is God's anointed king. It's also that David entrusts himself to God, that God will repay Saul in due time for God to avenge him. David waits for God's vengeance. After all, God is the God of vengeance. God is the God of vengeance. I don't know how that sits with you, the idea that God is a vengeful God. It might almost feel wrong to attribute vengeance to our good and holy God, who is love. But that's how God describes himself in his word. If you look with me at Psalm 94, we see the clearest statement of this. O Lord, God of vengeance, a God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. God is the God of vengeance. You might push back here and say, well, God's avenging those who can't get justice for themselves. He's doing it on behalf of others. He's not seeking personal vengeance. But that isn't quite the case. And Moses, in his final song before he dies, sings these lines in Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Yes, God avenges his people, but he also repays those who hate him. It's not just in the name of justice for the weak, it's personal. God is a God of vengeance. And just like human vengeance, God's vengeance is both satisfying and disturbing. It's satisfying because it's actually what we really want deep down. Open a history book about any place or any time, and you'll see countless acts of injustice, of brutality and oppression, of people committing atrocities against others, and more often than not, getting away with it. And it's not just in history. Even today, our world is a place of deep injustice, no matter your definition of the word. Whether it's the sex slave trade that's still active all around the world today, or the oppression of urban Muslims in China or civilians in North Korea, including Christians. There are people who are trampling on the vulnerable and these people will probably never face justice in this life. But although they may not be repaid in this life, they will face retribution. On the last day when Christ returns, the books will be opened. All lies will be laid bare from beginning to end and everyone will have to give account for what they have done to God before God and God will avenge the downtrodden and unlike us his vengeance will be perfectly just because unlike us God knows all things as hebrews 4:13 says no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account god is all seeing all-knowing even to the depths of our deepest thoughts and desires there is nothing that god will miss and unlike us god is completely impartial human judges can be bribed they can be swayed by public opinion they can make mistakes god's judgment is never swayed and cannot be corrupted even when it's personal he's completely impartial and his impartiality is rooted in his very being God by nature is justice. His goodness and love demand nothing less than perfect justice. Sometimes we hear the argument that because God is love, there's no way he could judge people and condemn them. For God to love, they say, he must show mercy and he must show it to everyone. But would it be loving for a judge to just let a murderer go free? Would it be loving for a just a judge to just acquit someone like Hitler? or Stalin, or any number of people who've perpetrated countless crimes and caused untold misery, death, and suffering. No, that would be the opposite of love, the opposite of goodness. Perfect love hates sin. Perfect goodness hates sin. It's because God is good and because he is love that he must be just and that he will see perfect justice is met. God's justice is rooted in his very being, and because he is righteous, we know that he will bring vengeance. And so I find this to be incredibly comforting. Um, It's overwhelming thinking of all that is wrong with this world, especially when it comes to the countless evils perpetrated by people. But on the last day, all wrongs will be called to account, and God will provide his perfect good and just vengeance. God's vengeance is something that we want. But as much as God's vengeance is satisfying and an incredible comfort, it's also deeply disturbing. And it's disturbing because we too are in the crosshairs of God's vengeance. That same all-seeing, all-knowing God who judges perfectly and impartially those who commit atrocities, he also sees and knows and exposes us. He sees into our hearts. He knows our every thought. He has witnessed every action. He knows you and he knows me and he knows us better than we know ourselves. He remembers every word of slander that we've spoken behind someone's back. He recalls every time we looked at that person lustfully and thought those lustful thoughts. He traced our thoughts as we thought murder of that person who insulted us. He sustains us even as we live our lives chasing after ambition and pleasure and comfort and reputation, rather than seeking Him and His glory, forgetting that every breath and every moment is given to us by Him. In short, God knows you, He knows me, and He knows how sinful we truly are. We fall so far short of God's perfect, holy standard. We fall so far short of His glory. And though we may not be tyrants like Hitler or murderers like Joab, it doesn't mean we'll escape from God's perfect justice. What makes God's vengeance disturbing is that we too are in his sights and he will bring justice. Which is why the gospel of Jesus is so good. God is love and he does have mercy, but he must also fulfill his perfect justice. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, prepared a way to show his mercy without compromising his justice. We see this in Romans chapter 3. Paul tells us clearly where we stand when it comes to God's vengeance. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes us. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. But God provides a way out. In fact, it's the only way out. Let's read on and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God puts forward a propitiation, which means something that turns away and satisfies wrath. And how is that wrath satisfied? Through the blood of Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life. Though tempted like we are, he never sinned. He was the only person in the world who didn't deserve God's vengeance. And yet he went willingly to the cross in obedience to his Father in order to satisfy God's vengeance. We deserved God's wrath, but Jesus took that upon himself in our place. And what was this to show? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's justice and God's mercy seen at the cross. The only way we can satisfy God's wrath is to bear it, to be judged and to be found wanting, and to be punished according to his righteous justice. And the only way we can escape his vengeance is if Jesus bears God's wrath on, uh, for us on our behalf. And that's what being a Christian is fundamentally about. We know we've wronged God. We know we deserve his vengeance. We put our lot in with Jesus completely because it's only through him that God's vengeance is satisfied. We've looked at the story of Joab, the man who takes vengeance into his own hands and murders Abner. We looked at David, the man who waits upon God's vengeance. We have looked at Jesus, the man who satisfies God's vengeance on our behalf. Where to from here? Well, I want to finish by thinking about what we ought to do if we ourselves are wronged. If someone wrongs us, how should we respond? Well, I want to say at the outset that if you're a victim of a crime, then you can and you should take the matter to the proper authorities. Uh, Personal forgiveness does not mean letting a crime go unpunished. God gave us authorities to uphold justice, uh, even if that justice is far from perfect. But what if we're the victim of a crime and justice truly hasn't been upheld? Or what if we've been wronged by someone and the legal system doesn't really come into it? What do we do then? Well, we could respond like Joab. Um, We could take matters into our own hands, just like so many people have and so many people do. Uh, It is, after all, our natural response to injustice. Uh, We see this in children they don't need to be taught to retaliate, to exact vengeance, to throw that toy at someone's head because they wouldn't share and to scream things like, you're not my friend, i not playing with you anymore and to slam doors and so on and so forth. You can tell I've had lots of personal experience lately. Um, but it's not like we get any better as we get older. Uh, it's not, as adults, it's not that we stop seeking revenge. We're just more sophisticated. We're sneakier. We get revenge by speaking about that person behind their back by dragging their name through the mud to slander them, to pay them back for what they did to us. Or maybe we use revenge tactics like quiet quitting as a way to get back to you, at your boss or at your company that you work for. If someone wrongs us, we could respond like Job and take things into our own hands. But we know that's wrong, don't we? As Hui so often tells our kids, two wrongs don't make a right. And they don't. Uh, taking justice into our own hands isn't justice. It only generates more injustice and the cycle of vengeance continues. And what's more, Jesus himself tells us that it's not the ethic of the kingdom of God. He told us a parable once in Matthew 18 about a servant who owed his master an enormous debt and his master out of pity forgave his debt. But then that man went out, found a fellow servant who owed him a trifling sum and demanded repayment. And even though this fellow servant fell to his knees and begged for patience, this man refused and had him thrown into prison. The master was furious when he found out. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? His master threw him into prison until he should pay back all he owed. Christians shouldn't seek vengeance. Instead, Christians should seek to forgive. We've had the record of our incalculable debt to God satisfied and nailed to the cross. How much more should we extend grace to others? And so we know that Joe's way isn't right. It isn't okay to take matters into our own hands. But it still leaves us with what we should do instead when we're wronged. Should we just shake it off like Taylor Swift so famously sung? To put up a stiff upper lip and take it for the team? To just shrug it off and get on with life? Maybe. It would be nice to think that we'd be noble enough to absorb that pain of being wronged and to be able to move on. But I think if we're being real here, it's not really a workable solution, even at the best of times. And especially when someone's been on the receiving end of marked injustice. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who now lives in the States. He witnessed firsthand the brutality of war in his home country, a war in which a quarter million people died and two million people became displaced. One town near his home city growing up was savagely destroyed and 30,000 people were either killed or driven from their homes. He has experienced traumatic evil. He has this to say to those who think that refraining from vengeance is easy. Here I quote Wolf. I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and levelled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of this thesis. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. It's pretty grim, but it kind of drives home the point, doesn't it? It's only when we're sitting here at ease in the comfort of Western modernity, shielded from the horrors of war, that we can even think that refraining from vengeance is an easy thing. It isn't. When we've been wronged, and especially in a scale like this, it's just not that easy to shake it off. So what can we do? Well, Wolf had a suggestion. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Wolf grounds himself in divine vengeance. Like David, he waits upon the vengeance of God. David experienced incredible difficulties because of Saul. Despite his loyalty to Saul, Saul tried to have him killed and nearly succeeded several times. And yet, David refrained from taking vengeance even when he had the opportunity. But he didn't refrain from vengeance because he was tough and impervious to being offended, or because he was so good in and of himself. Instead, he refrained because he waited. He waited upon God's vengeance. And I want to suggest that we should too. If we're wronged, we ought to commit the situation to God and leave it to his vengeance, his justice. We ought to wait upon God. It echoes what Paul has to say in Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Leave room for God's wrath. Waiting on God's vengeance is an act of faith, of true faith, of trust that God will follow through and judge justly, that God knows what he is doing and he will do things in his perfect time. God's vengeance grounds us and gives us the moral ground and the motivation to wait to not take matters into our own hands and it gives us the power to not only restrain ourselves from taking vengeance but ultimately to eventually move towards forgiveness and even reconciliation just as god himself forgave us in christ let's pray father we've been running again of how far short uh, how far we fall short of your glory You are a good, holy, and just God. And before your light, we see in ourselves the darkness of our souls, our sin and our idolatry. We know we deserve your just vengeance. Thank you for Jesus who took upon himself your wrath, the penalty of sin that we deserve. Thank you for forgiving us of our sin and for bringing us out of death into life, life eternal with you. We pray that we might live in light of your grace to us. When we've been wronged, grant that we would rest upon and wait for your vengeance, trusting that you will bring all to account. Help us to have peace in that and not to take things into our own hands. And for those who do seek our forgiveness, help us to forgive just as you have forgiven us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.